Welcome to the Podglomerate. Hello and welcome to Plus of an Intelligence, the show about how games impact people. My name is Chess. Once again, we are continuing our seven-part series on games and mental health. In today's episode, I am talking to a guest that was recommended to me multiple times. I was told that I couldn't do a series on games and mental health without talking to Dr. B. So, here we are. The reasons for that, I think, will become clear very quickly. And he's representing Take This, which is a fantastic organization promoting mental health in the gaming community. This episode is brought to you by Discord. Discord is an all-in-one voice and text chat platform designed for gamers, and it's free to use on your desktop, phone, or tablet. Use it to co-op with friends or to discover new communities of gamers to play with. Get started with Discord by checking out the Plus 7 Intelligence Discord server, the place to discuss how games impact people. Just go to discord.gg slash plus 7. It's dangerous to go alone, so take this interview. All right, I am here with Dr. Rafael Bocamazzo, also known as Dr. B, the clinical director for the nonprofit charity Take This. Welcome to the show, Dr. B. Well, thank you for having me. What led to your interest in studying psychology? Oh, boy. Yeah, the, the, the easy questions. <laughs> what is my motivation for doing what I do? Well, I grew up in a family that had you know, the short version is that I grew up in a family that had some psychological needs. My father suffers from PTSD. Uh, he was an MP in Thailand during the Vietnam War and uh, for various other reasons. And I've watched him struggle with that my entire life. Uh, additionally, you know, I watched classmates and whatnot struggle. And I just, you know, I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to help people. And, uh, you know, it's, kind of interesting that later on I was actually diagnosed on mildly on the uh, autism spectrum as well with Asperger's. So uh, it, I don't know, it, it's very personal deeply for me. I just want to make sure people lead the best lives they can in whatever way that means for them. That's really interesting. You know, I've had several psychologists come on the show and they, they all have different reasons. Some of them kind of fell into it. And it sounds like for you, it was, it was very, very personal and, and very meaningful for you. Yeah, I, you know, especially with my dad, who, you know, he's really one of my heroes that I, I watch him over the last, you know, 35 years, really, really struggle with the symptoms that he's dealt with for decades. And for him to keep fighting and keep improving, uh, it, it's, you know, it's nothing short of inspirational. And if I can be the type of person who can help other people along in that kind of journey, I will consider it a life well lived. This is obviously something that's important and serious, but then there's also video games, which might <laughs> might not be the most obvious mix. How did you first start to look at video games through the lens of psychology? Well, I mean, if I really wanted to stretch that question out, I mean, I can look at my own involvement in video games my entire life. You can't see it here, but I have a framed copy of Nintendo Power issue number one from 1988. And mm -hmm. I still have the first 70 issues of Nintendo Power kicking around. 
I've been playing video games my entire life. I've been playing board games my entire life. Uh, you know, so I got into Dungeons and Dragons in the late 90s. And art in and of itself is something that we can think about through, you know, uh, the stories we tell ourselves shape how we view the world. Actually, there's a really great book uh, largely focusing on that in the 70s called If You Meet the Buddha on the Road, Kill Him. And it talks about stories and psychotherapy. But as video games have become more prevalent as a media form, you know, they've become the shared stories through which a lot of us end up shaping our lives. Uh, you know, how many people do you know that can talk about the struggles of, Zel of Link, Zelda, and Ganon? If you go into a room and go, it's a me, Mario, I mean, people get it. it. It's become a part of our shared culture. And so, you know, subsequently, it seems like a natural fit. Hmm. In your practice of psychology, how did you first bring in video games or really tackle it directly? You know, I think about how to meet people where they are. And, you know, when we think about doing therapy with people, we anytime we can use shared language, shared experience, shared culture, it's a good thing for building rapport, for for shaping how how our clients can improve upon their lives and even seeing how they see the world. And I, I suppose this is something I've, I've never really consciously thought about because it's just always been there for me. And subsequently, a lot of my clients have the same thing. You know, they seem to, they're gamers. And so being so immersed in gamer culture myself, I've never really given it a lot of conscious thought about, I am definitely going to go forth and utilize video games and tabletop games in my practice. It's just kind of something that happened because it ends up being an authentic reflection of who I am and my own experiences, as well as the experiences of my clients. How have your colleagues or other other psychologists, other clinicians around you, how have they reacted to the way that you use them or incorporate them? Well, there's a mix. I mean, if you, in any industry, you're going to run into people who are stuck in their ways and they're rigid and they have very definite ideas about the way that things should be. And you're also going to have people who are very excited about new ideas. And you're going to have a lot of people who are just kind of in the middle and a little indifferent. But when I've talked, and I, I've led some trainings on this, when I've talked to other te to teachers, to clinicians about embracing gamer culture, and I don't just mean video games, I mean tabletop gaming, really any gamer and geek culture from a multicultural perspective, they're fascinated by it. Because it's a world that a lot of, a, a lot of clinicians and mental health providers, they don't immerse themselves in. Hmm. And I, you know, being that it, it, it's been my world, it, for me, you may as well try and explain water to a fish, but it's just the norm for me. And it was a real shock for me to realize that there's a lot of other people out there who don't, you know, if I make a, if I make a crack about Link and Ganon or something like that, and they don't get it, and I'm looking into, at my colleagues, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm alone in that one. Okay, got it. <laughs> I rolled a natural one. Anybody get that? No. Okay. I'm, I'm alone on that one too. Got it. And so the idea that they could be learning of their client's world 
is something that a lot of them have been very enthusiastic about. That's interesting. I, I think some of the other people I've talked to on the show have, have kind of said the same, that maybe there's been this generational barrier or a culture barrier that people have wanted to get through or wanted to be on the other side, but they might not have really felt comfortable or known where to start. But people are finding new ways to do it by incorporating games into all aspects of, of uh, life and work. Yeah, I mean, there's that. But well, and at the same time, one of the things I like to think about is the fact that gaming is not a fringe activity anymore. <laughs> you know, when we think about the old stereotype of what it is to be a nerd, a geek, a gamer that we, you know, we see from movies, again, stories that we that we tell we look at the movies like Revenge of the Nerds or, you know, any of the John Hughes movies and we see how nerds are portrayed portrayed. And that's just not the reality anymore. I mean, geeks, gamers, and nerds, we've kind of won the cultural war in a lot of respects. <laughs> I, I think the, the, the MCU, the Marvel cinematic universe more or less <laughs> proves that. And you know, the fact that game, video games in the United States have, in 2016, earned more than the U.S. film industry tells me that geeks, gamers, and nerds, we, we've won this. So it's not just this fringe activity that's done by, you know, lonely people in their basements. There are now so many conventions where people can build community around video games, tabletop games, anime, manga, whatever have you, you can find your community and it's a wonderful thing. And we see that in ways we've never seen before. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. That's something that is a reason why I started this show is the way that we think about gaming and the way that gaming actually is in terms of culture and society and prevalence they're they're very different they don't match up it doesn't no one should feel ashamed about what they like and their hobbies or whatever i mean no one should feel ashamed regardless of how popular it is but gaming is incredibly popular so why do we feel so ashamed about it it's it's very weird it's very confusing to me why games aren't given the weight that other mediums get that gamers don't get the same treatment that other people with hobbies get. It's very confusing to me. I thought for a moment you were going to go Rodney Dangerfield and just say, I get, you know, games get no respect. <laughs> um, uh, I, I you know, my own suspicions is that there is still a generational influence on this. And we've got a lot of people, well, the, you know, the Entertainment Software Association, the ESA's uh, surveys have said that the age of the typical gamer is either 35 or 36 in that range. There's still a lot of people who don't really consider themselves gamers, who look upon it as a fringe media. And that's just an outdated viewpoint. And but unfortunately, a lot some of those people are kind of influential and they're they, you know, they still drive how we perceive that sort of thing, even though it doesn't match up to the reality of the situation. I mean, you've got women and men playing video games at roughly the same ratio, you know, nearly 50% of the games industry is women or the, you know, not the games industry, but uh, consumers. And so it, it's just unfortunate that we still have these outdated stereotypes about gamers. So let's go ahead and start talking about take this. Mm. 
So what is Take This? <laughs> so Take This is a mental health nonprofit that sadly was founded in the wake of tragedy. A little over five years ago, a games journalist by the name of Matthew Hughes lost his struggle with major depressive disorder and took his own life. And in the wake of that tragedy, our three founders, two of whom are very accomplished video game journalists, and one of whom is a practicing psychologist in the Boston area, they got together and asked, what could we do? So they came up with this idea to start, at first I believe it was a Tumblr blog, but then morphed into a panel that was done at PAX East in 2013, dedicated to the idea of letting people know that they weren't alone. Hence why we like to use our, our slogan, it's dangerous to go alone. It's this idea that mental health challenges are far more common than we realize. CDC estimates put lifetime prevalence rates in the United States at roughly one in four. And that's for a full-blown diagnosis, not, you know, not to mention the, the sort of emotional challenges that we all face. And even that number is considered conservative by some. I think there was a study at Harvard about four years ago that estimated the prevalence rate at roughly one in two. And other post-industrial nations have similar occurrence rates. And so Take This exists to destigmatize mental health, to let people know that it's okay to not be okay, to let them know that there are resources available, that other people are struggling with this. And it's silly that we're not talking about it. So hmm. we do outreach in the form of panels, in the form of educational content on our website, takethis.org. We do partnerships with various organizations. With the International Game Developers Association, two years ago, we wrote a white paper for them called Crunch Hurts, all about the problematic use of crunch in the games industry and its effects, both financially and in terms of human cost. And so, you know, in a nutshell, take this once we destigmatize, we educate, and we just let people know that there's hope and healing out there. It's interesting. We were just talking about how gamers can feel stigmatized and feel alone for something that's very common. It's weird that that's exactly how mental health is as well, that there's stigma, there's misunderstanding, there's the sense that you're alone. And I feel like that's something that the gaming community has in common with, with I guess, the people who are struggling with, with mental health issues. Oh, well, certainly. I mean, you know, one of the great things about the games community, and it's in some respects kind of a double-edged sword, is that due to the advent of, you know, the internet and communication technology over the last 20 years, it, it's never been easier to find your community. And you can do it from the comfort of your own home. And there's a lot of power there. And yet, at the same time, in a lot of respects... That can also, you know, I've heard people talk about this it, when they've come into the AFK room, they still feel isolated and alone. So we, in some respects, connected, but still isolated. And I think there's a chapter in the book, The Video Game Debate, that was edited by Rachel Coward, that talks about uh, the pros and cons of internet communication uh, in terms of like social capital. But 
yeah, I mean, it's just, in, it's incredible that people can be so connected and still, even with things like their, their mental health challenges, still feel so alone. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, we could probably talk an awful lot about how social media plays into that and how online you, you want to put your best face forward. And so you are connecting with people, but not necessarily always in a genuine way. But at the same time, I've, I know I've made good friends through online gaming. I know that a lot of other people have. So that's, that's definitely something that can have mixed results, I guess you could say. But it is great that people are able to come together and, and find community where before it just wasn't possible. Oh, certainly not in the same way. I mean, you kind of had to go with who you had around you and you didn't have a whole lot of choice. And if you wanted to find something else, it was a lot more work than now. But, you know, and now we get to curate our friendships in a way that we've never been able to before. <laughs> yeah, I've always felt that's that's a very weird thing about online space. I always felt, I don't know, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I always felt like I was pretty good at, you know, in, in a group of friends there's some people that they don't always get the best reputation. I felt like I was always good at giving people a chance. But, you know, online, if you want to ignore someone, you can ignore them. <laughs> or you can just put yourself in a space that you might never actually run into them. So it's so easy to exclude people, mm -hmm. even accidentally. And, you know, that ability to have someone around that you don't completely connect with and you may never connect with them perfectly, but being able to build a bridge, build a connection, go through that struggle and actually make something happen, you know, that's a skill that I think a lot of people have have lost. And I think that's something that, that's going to be a challenge, I think, in, in the future. Well, I think there's, a, if I recall correctly, one of our volunteers who, while she was still a grad student, her name is Chelsea Hughes. Uh, now the relatively recently newly minted Dr. Chelsea Hughes, hmm. she wrote a piece for us on something similar on our website about the pros and cons of online communication. And one of the things, if I recall correctly, that she wrote about was the idea that we, in some respects, would be able to be our more authentic self because hmm. there's less uh, there's less risk in a lot of respects than in face-to-face -face synchronous communications. Hmm. Yeah, that's that was something else I wanted to mention because I went. I, I feel like I, my life story comes up in every episode on mental health now. But uh, <laughs> when amazing how that happens. Yeah, um, yeah, it's now revealed that this podcast series was all a plan to get some free psychological advice. Well, if now, it helps, I'll put on like a fake white beard and talk in a really bad Austrian accent and just <laughs> ask you to tell me about your mother. <laughs> Oh man. But anyway, there was a there was a time that I was basically unemployed. I was depressed and I was playing online games with people and my real life friends, I I felt really embarrassed that I didn't have a job and I didn't have direction in my life. So I kind of shut them out cuz I didn't really know how to be around people. And but then I started making good online friends because I could just be myself. I wasn't the guy without a job. I was a guy who was a good DPS and I, you know, was relatively fun to be around. I took the game seriously, so I was reliable. And, you know, that allowed me to make friends where otherwise I 
I mean, obviously I was capable of it, but I didn't. So, so that game was a lifeline that I, like you said, allowed me to mostly be myself in a way that I felt like real world in the real world, I couldn't be myself. Well, and one of the things I heard out of that is that you had a purpose, you had a skill set, you had a very unique set of skills. <laughs> and you you know, skill set, you had a purpose, you had a routine, and you felt valued for having done that. And you were also reliable and knowledgeable, all of which are just terrible qualities in a friend. <laughs> But you were able to take that, you are basically able to take that lesson and externalize it to, you know, your IRL friendships and build from there. Mm -hmm. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, because that, it was, it was great for me too, because I realized it was the first time in my life that I made friends from my personality, not because these were people that I happened to be around, but it was, they liked me for me. It wasn't a friendship just by proximity. So that gave me a lot of confidence again, that I realized, hey, these people... They actually like me like they there's proof they like me because they could find another DPS easily. Mm -hmm. And, you know, no, they actually liked me. That's something that doesn't come along in the real world all that much because, you know, you might. I mean, I'm the type of person that would always doubt. Well, they just like me because I'm around or they just <laughs> like me because they're friends with my wife. Um, they just like me because I'm with them at work. Anyway, yeah, games games did allow me to experience friendship in a different way. Mm -hmm. And that's something a lot of people tell us. You know, the, a lot of the stories that we get sent by people reflect something like that, being able to participate in this online community or in a Dungeons & Dragons game. It showed me that I have value to other people. They chose to spend their time with me. And it's really an amazing thing to to see these sort of communities build up. And then I, I, I love getting to be at conventions when groups of online friends get to hang out together for the first time in real life. It's just so cool. <laughs> they've never met in person, and yet they've already got this shared language. They've already got a shared, you know, obviously shared interests. But it's just so cool to see them meet face to face and get to know each other on a different level. Yeah, it, it is a unique experience to to meet someone in real life that, that you've only ever talked with online or might have only ever seen their avatar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's very unique. <laughs> Boy, you're a lot taller than your dwarf avatar. <laughs> uh... <laughs> So bring it back to take this, what do you do as the clinical director there? Well, I'm largely responsible for the content that we put out in terms of educational content. When I was originally hired two and a half years ago, we our AFK rooms largely existed regionally. And my task was to unify the policies and the codes as we grew as an organization, because we, as I said, we started as a Tumblr blog and then just kind of exploded out from there. So I'm largely responsible for the training of all of our AFK room volunteers, our content, you know, our educational content, uh, so a lot of our policies, as well as, uh, you know, I do consultation work with studios with uh, conventions themselves because that's actually one thing that a lot of people don't know about us we do a lot of work behind the scenes 
We will consult with game studios about their mental health policies, practices, help guide them as they grow into bigger entities away from being a startup. And we, even before we bring an AFK room to a convention, we do a full evaluation of the show's infrastructure and policies to make sure it can support an AFK room without turning it into something it's not. Yeah, I've got my fingers in a lot of different pies with Take This. <laughs> can you talk a little bit about what AFK rooms are and, and how they're helpful? Yeah, absolutely. God, I love talking about the AFK rooms because it seems to be what we're best known for. So first of all, the AFK it's an acronym that's so old, people don't even realize what it means anymore. It's, it's from like the AOL instant messenger days, uh, you know, away from keyboard. And what we like to say is it's the most boring room at the show. Hmm. And what's really cool is, you know, we found out we were the first organization in the world to utilize staffed mental health spaces at busy gaming conventions. It started at PAX East in 2014. It's now expanded to every PAX event worldwide. Uh, we've been, I'm about, I'm flying out to E3 in mid-June, and we're going to be there for the third time. I was just recently at Momocon in Atlanta. I mean, we're just, we're getting all over the place with the AFK room, but basically it's a space away from the hustle and bustle of the convention. 90% of the people who come into the room just need a break. Because one of the things I like to tell my my friends who are not gamers about going to a you know a convention, especially a video game convention, where there's so many flashing lights, there's so many noises, often in a dark room, you're getting jostled around, and I I'm I'm a big dude, I get jostled around all the time by you know throngs of people who want to you know get their next autograph or whatever. And so, I, you know, I got the lights around me. I got the sounds around me. I'm getting pushed around by all these people in really cool cosplay. And it gets overwhelming. It just gets too much from time to time. So people come into the AFK room when they need a break. But what's cool about it is we've got clinicians at every shift, not to therapize you, because we, we don't actually offer therapy in the AFK room for a variety of reasons <laughs> but they they're going to offer a listening ear they're going to offer resources education about mental health and they're just going to talk to you about your convention experience and it's it was a hit right off the bat and just exploded outward and it was one of those things uh, you know my favorite author is terry pratchett and i think there's a line in one of his books that it, it takes a special kind of genius to invent something anybody could have thought of and there were so many people when we started running the AFK room in 2014, they were like, why did nobody think of this for, why has nobody thought about this before? And it's just, it, it's turned out to be an amazing service that we've offered people. In 2016, 2017, we were able to help over 5,000 people. And that's amazing. Let's talk about Discord, sponsor of this series on games and mental health. Discord is the greatest way for gamers to connect online. Hang out in chat rooms to discuss gaming exploits, then jump into voice chat to play a co-op match. All of this for free on your desktop or mobile device. If you create your own Discord server, you have so many options to customize. For the Plus 7 Intelligence Discord server, I wanted to set it up to be fun for the community, but also functional for the things that I want to do. So there are open voice channels for listeners to use while playing games together. And I have different chat rooms available for when I get around to doing some streaming or live chat events. 
We've got an emoji with the show artwork that you can use if you want to tag something you see as particularly intelligent. Discord has allowed me to turn it into a one-of-the-kind corner of the internet, just like this show. That's why the Discord server for Plus 7 Intelligence is the place to discuss how games impact the world. To join the server and get started with Discord, go to discord.gg slash plus 7, or within Discord, simply type in plus 7 as the server. That's P-L-U-S numeral 7. The link is in the show notes and on plus7intelligence.com as well. Plus 7 Intelligence is also brought to you by another great show, Headshots. Fans of this series on games and mental health should go out and listen to Headshots right now. It's the show about games and psychology, hosted by friends of the show, Josue Cardona and Kelly Dunlap. They bring their experience from clinical psychology, game design, and counseling to discuss games and how they affect us psychologically. They might reveal the secrets of why certain games are so effective at grabbing our interests through psychological insights. They often talk about how games are designed to make us feel a certain way, to empathize with characters and situations. They also tackle the big debates and headlines, like exactly how addictive are loot boxes. If you are interested in figuring out how games impact the world, you've got to listen to Headshots. It's part of the Geek Therapy Network, which I rave about all the time. You can find it at headshotspodcast.com, and of course, on all your favorite podcast outlets. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, all that jazz. Wow. Yeah, and I was going to ask, Gaming conventions aren't the only large gatherings of people. Are there other conventions or other areas where they implement something like AFK rooms? Well, we've seen, well, we're not just at gaming conventions. So Momocon in Atlanta that we were just at for the third time, it's primarily an anime and cosplay convention. Mm -hmm. And so we were definitely there at that. E3, I mean, that's not, it is kind of a gaming convention, but definitely still more industry oriented. Uh, we were at MAGFest earlier this year in Washington, D.C., and that stands for Music and Gaming Festival. So this you know, being overstimulated is not just limited to video game conventions. There are all sorts of ways for people to get overstimulated and need a break at any sort of busy gathering. And we'll, of course, work with anybody who wants to do that. Yeah, I was just at Universal this weekend, and I was just thinking that, that might be a good place for something like that, but I don't know if something like that exists besides, I mean, they have relatively, you know, quiet areas or less busy areas, but nothing that's a safe space for that. Right, right. And, you know, we've seen other conventions and other organizations institute quiet rooms, which is an amazing first step. That is a wonderful first step that they are acknowledging the need for that sort of thing. What we do differently we have a unified set of training that all of our volunteers go through and it's a staffed room where they know how to maintain the decorum of the room. They know how to maintain a certain, you know, standard where, you know, in an unstaffed quiet room where you have untrained or in, even in a place where you have untrained volunteers, you know, somebody could, somebody could go in and, well, I don't know what could happen. I mean, if they could just turn it into like group gaming or whatever, have you? And that's just what we offer that's that's different from other things out there, having that staffed space. What are some common mental health concerns in the gaming community? Are there 
differences between what the gaming community sees and the general population? A, a statistic I brought up earlier is one that we like to cite a lot at Take This, that one in four people will be diagnosed with a mental health condition in their lifetime in the United States. And that makes it exceedingly common. Hmm. Why would the game community be any different? That one in four is pretty significant. There are some studies that suggest a correlation between increased mental health diagnoses and things like introversion, creativity, and that sort of thing. And Lord knows we have creative, introverted people in the games industry. But still, one in four is a significant number, absolutely significant number. So this is just where we are in a lot of respects. The concerns that gamers have are, in a lot of respects, the same as anybody else. You know, can, they want connection. They want, you know, they want to feel a sense of community. They want to feel a sense of confidence, self-esteem. You know, personally, I just, I don't see much difference. It just happens to be that we have different interests. That's interesting to me because there are a lot of stigmas that around gaming and mental health saying that gamers are antisocial, they aren't adjusted to the real world, but... I think I've mentioned it before in the podcast that I think that that's pretty much true of the general population, but for some reason, <laughs> we only believe it about gamers. I don't know what that's about. Well, I mean, we go to those outdated, again, the outdated stories that we've been told about what it is to be a geek and a nerd, you know, it, and people cling on to those. But the reality is that, and I mean, we've even talked about it in, in this recording already, that people use this as a way to find their communities. I, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I can't call the, a Dungeons and Dragons session antisocial by any stretch of the imagination. Even if it's done online on like Roll20 or, you know, an equivalent program, those are people who want to get together to collaborate, to tell a story. I've got a friend in Seattle who is a, an accomplished game developer and he's also a top-tier World of Warcraft player. His guild is one of the top-rated guilds. And I met him because he started dating a friend of mine. He also happens to be in a band that plays semi-regularly. Now, aside from the fact that I don't know how he has that much energy uh, mm -hmm. to do all the stuff he does, that sounds pretty well-adjusted to me. Yeah, and... I don't know, stigmas like that, they, they don't seem very useful. Um, I don't think they were really ever useful. I like the theory that it's all because of marketing, that when video game consoles were brought into the home, uh, marketers decided that they wanted every little boy to have their own system at home. So they developed games that you played alone at your house. And that kind of fed on itself that, oh, well, now gamers, they're men and they're alone and their little boys it's because that's that's what the marketing was around them and that's kind of then that fed into the type of games that were made and it started to sort of be self-fulfilling but definitely not a complete picture at all well and you know one of my biggest interests is dungeons and dragons and when i look at the history of that we look at the satanic panic of the 1980s and some of the horrible stereotypes that were undeservedly heaped upon you know, D and D players and, you know, RP, you know, tabletop role-playing game players. I, I would suspect that that largely carried forth because 
you know, there, at least in my own life, there was a pretty significant overlap between the people who played video games and the people who played things like Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, and at this, and at the same time, the games that were available in those days on the NES, on the Super Nintendo, and even you know in the early iterations of the internet, they were lar- we played a ton of multiplayer games. Some of my best memories are going to a friend's house. And we'd have these sleepovers where we'd have 16-man worm tournaments, uh, Worms Armageddon. And <laughs> God, his dad got angry at us when we got too loud at 3 a.m. because somebody got an amazing <laughs> shot. Um, oh, those super banana bombs. <laughs> so, oh, man. I, I, you know, I, I suspect that the idea of this outdated idea of the gamer as an isolated outcast is going to be quickly changing over the next decade because gamers are growing up and we are now, you know, we are now influencing the media. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. When I first started the show, that's one of the ways that I talked about how important it is to talk about video games because there's whole generations of people that absolutely love games, have been playing games for now 20 30 40 years and uh and you know well we you talked about revenge of the nerds earlier it's exactly like that you know you you might beat down the gaming community for a while but now there's a lot of us well hopefully and, there's uh, less misogyny than that movie <laughs> yeah yeah that's absolutely true that's Oh, that's that's another in, in the actual rise up of the 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 actual revenge of the nerds. I, I would really hope there'd be less a whole lot less misogyny. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's something that the gaming community sadly is not free of at all. <sighs> I don't think I can get into that right now, but <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty deep rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, you know. There's also these amazing inclusive communities that are more or less free of that. There, we've got amazing streamers now who are, who that's their whole thing, inclusivity. We've got people, we got organizations like Take This who want to make safe spaces for you know, like the AFK room for everybody to come to and for everybody to enjoy. So, you know, we can have that flip side as well. Yeah. I'm gonna keep it hopeful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it is it is tough, you know. I there's so many things that I love about the gaming community, but at the same time, you know, I have a daughter and eventually she's going to play online games and I'm going to want her to enjoy the games that I enjoy, but I don't want her to run into misogynist people, but yeah. at this stage there's really nothing I can do to avoid that. Well, I'm one thing I want to I want to talk about with that is we made this announcement at TwitchCon last year that one of the things we're developing and we are in the process of developing it right now is a streaming ambassadorship program. While it may not help immediately with things like you know multiplayer games, we can then have streamers who are going to uphold certain standards of you know, what they do, how they're going to be inclusive, how they're going to be supportive and compassionate, especially in regards to mental health matters. But inclusivity is a big factor in people's mental health as well. So, you know, we've got to have a piece there. But more importantly, I I think people are going to, if they see that, you know, that take this ambassador, official ambassador logo on their stream, they're going to know what they're not going to get on that stream. And that's going to be 
you know, misogyny, uh, any sort of harassment or anything like that, because they're going to have to, they're going to have to uphold that. And we're really hoping to have that. We're, we're planning on having that launched at PAX West in 2018, got not 2017. That's last year. That would have been a fun time Turner moment and Hermione Granger. I ain't so. <laughs> well, that's, I'm glad to hear that. I think that that's an area that the gaming community that we really need to be tackling much more directly. Mm-hmm. We talked about stigmas. I think one of the best ways to combat stigmas is to get good information out there. So how does Take This support research on mental health and video games? Well, it's something that we've talked about a lot since day one. Um, and it's an ongoing conversation that we have. And as we grow, we're really excited to get more directly involved in the research. Now that said, we've got an entire generation of up and coming researchers, many of whom are involved with us. We, we currently have a network of over 400 clinician volunteers, and that doesn't include the grad students. I, I previously mentioned uh, Dr. Chelsea Hughes, and you know I believe her dissertation was on violence and aggression as related to media. And we have discussions with our, we have our students discuss this with us all the time about these cool dissertation topics that they're going to be doing, largely because they are gamers. They grew up being inundated in, you know, gamer community. They're involved with us. They see the work that we're doing and they want to take that one step further. And this is a new generation of people who are going to be shaping the minds of future generations on how video games affect people and how we can use them for, you know, benefiting the world. That's so cool. Yeah, I'm I'm super excited about developments that are happening even in the past few years. I feel like there's been a huge amount of development and growth in in this area in games being accepted as as a a valid activity which you know, it seems ridiculous that that <laughs> is still a battle. But uh, <laughs> seeing gamers get out there and and start to get some interesting research going, I think that there's there's so much going on that's it's very hopeful. I'm I'm very optimistic. Well, even taking that one step further, even in the games community, the game developers community, they are aware of you know, probably in a lot of respects as the builders of these stories, the effects that stories have on our perceptions. And so in the last couple of years, I think there's really been an explosion of video games that are less there for entertainment, more there to tell a story. And Take This actually partnered with a British company called Wired Productions last year, who made this amazing game called Town of Light, It is not an easy game to play, not in terms of it's not like Dark Souls where it's not just challenging. It's just emotionally hard to play because what they did with this game was they did a lot of research. It's pretty darn historically accurate. And they wanted to tell a story of one woman going back to revisit the now condemned and, you know, crumbling remains of a psychiatric facility that she was hospitalized in in the mid 20th century in Florence hmm. and all the complications that go with that. One of the things I really liked about this game was they didn't paint 
the mental health clinicians as the sort of nurse ratchet type antagonists. They were instead put upon bureaucrats who were really trying to do their best with the tools that they had. And it's a very, very nuanced portrayal of mental health, of trauma, of mental health treatment at a time where, well, I mean, obviously we've learned a lot in the last seven decades. Hmm. And, it, but it's a, it's a tough game to play, but it has a message. And we're seeing more and more of those games coming out. And it, it's just amazing to see how compassionately they are portraying mental health mm-hmm. in a way that we just weren't seeing before. Yeah, I am very excited about how the indie game space has evolved, that now there's so many more stories being told through games. Game making tools have made it possible for many more people to get involved and be able to turn around a game where before it was much more difficult and required a huge amount of talent, which it still does, obviously, to make a good <laughs> game. But but the barriers to entry are lower. Yeah. Is what I mean. Pretty much, I mean, anyone can really give it a shot. And yeah, seeing seeing more stories, seeing games that are more than just another corporate way to sell a product, but to, you know, tell a story, to make art, mm-hmm. to connect with people. It's it's very encouraging. Oh, yeah, it's wonderful. And it, it, just from a personal and professional perspective, it's nice to that we can break away from some of, you know, speaking of outdated stereotypes, the you know, if you think about a video game and you wake up in a in a residential hospital, more colloquially known as an insane asylum, in a video game, do you think anything good is about to happen? Probably not. <laughs> and that you know, yeah. even that in and of itself tells you something. And it's really exciting for for me to see these game companies and these developers become acutely aware of this that. Now, especially with the growing awareness of how common mental health challenges are, those who have suffered from mental health challenges are starting to control the narrative a little bit more instead of people who have never experienced something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's more compassionate, it's more inclusive, and it's just wonderful. Absolutely. So you told me before we started recording that you are working on a new I guess it's a new class, a new curriculum for teaching other clinicians and also working on writing a book. You mind talking about that? <laughs> yeah. You seemed very uh, excited about it. I didn't quite understand it, but. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I like so many, uh, like all of the clinicians that work with take this. I mean, everybody does different things. Everybody has areas of interest. And that's one of the benefits of having an organization with so many wonderful clinicians involved is that we all bounce ideas off of each other and we just get to highlight the different things we do. And one of the things I do in the Seattle area is I am a facilitator for a social skills program that utilizes Dungeons and Dragons to teach social skills to often to high functioning Asperger's diagnoses, social anxiety, but you know, just anybody who wants to be a part of it. And subsequently, I am co-developing a continuing education program on how to apply therapeutic role-playing games in a clinical setting that I'm going to be teaching in October. It's an all-day workshop that I'm going to be teaching other clinicians, teachers, medical providers, 
about how to do that, how I do that. And I'm, I'm developing this in conjunction with a friend and colleague, Dr. Megan Connell in North Carolina. And it's going to be, it's going to be awesome to get just a bunch of, get a bunch of, get a bunch of shrinks in a room and <laughs> make them play Dungeons and Dragons for the first time and mm. teach them how to use established psychological principles to use it as an intervention. Mm. It's going to be so cool to teach them that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I can hear both the joy and the expectation of hilarious things happening. <laughs> oh my God. It, you know, there's, I think there's three parts to being, to doing this sort of thing. One is you have to really, really have, you need to understand psychological principles, conceptualization, and how to apply those in a, in a classical way. You also need to have a thorough understanding of the game system and a willingness to play. And I think it's a rare person that has all three understandings and uh, it's going to be so cool to try and bring those all out in a bunch of people who have never seen this, who have never experienced this. And for them to see the sort of firsthand joy and community building that we've been talking about this entire time and to see the sort of, you know, you talked about your own experience in developing mastery and developing confidence and developing self-confidence that you were able to externalize. And we're going to be doing that live in front of a room of, I don't know, a hundred mental health providers. Hmm. And I'm so looking forward to doing that. Yeah. I've done a couple episodes now that have touched on using RPGs in a therapeutic setting. And, you know, that is, that is something that's come up is that it's, it's not something that's easy. It's not a magic trick to, um, you know, add in a role-playing game and then, you know, all of a sudden you're better. <laughs> but it seems like even though it does take a, a wide variety of skills, a variety of knowledge, that there's, that there's enough potential and enough power there that it's effective enough that, that it's worth it. And that's one of the things that uh, some of our clinicians, well, I should say some of our future clinicians that are involved with Take This, that they, they talk about. We've got one person who, uh, by the name of Daniel Wendler, who is currently a doctoral student in Oregon. He's written some, he's already written some social skills books that I, I love to reference. He's written some social skills articles for us at Take This, but about you know, a year ago, he contacted me for thoughts on how to do his dissertation on applied Dungeons and Dragons. So we've got an entire generation of up and coming professionals who want to utilize games, who want mm -hmm. to show this isn't something we need to have moral outrage about. And it's just so cool to see, you know, their progress and for them to flourish and to, you know, be doing that myself. That's that brings me such hope because, you know, I wrapping back to what we talked about at the beginning is gamers often feel alone and feel like people won't understand them. And if you're going through a mental health issue that can be multiplied, but hearing that there's this training going on, there's this push, this group of clinicians that take the gaming community seriously and relate to them and want to relate to them more and want to use their tools more. That brings me a lot of hope because I know that I felt it that at times that people wouldn't understand me because games were 
pretty much my entire life and the people around me did not see that as a good thing at all and couldn't really connect with that. And that held me back from seeking out help. But it, it gives me hope that that it's growing now and there's a lot more availability for people to connect with someone that can help them that they can feel comfortable with. Well, and you, you know, even the way you phrased something a moment ago, there's an up and coming generation of clinicians who relate to the gaming community. Well, it's not that we relate to the gaming community. We're part of the gaming community. Right. And we just happen to be clinicians as well. And on a personal level, this is, I think, a corollary of our mission at Take This is not only do we want to destigmatize mental health, we also want to destigmatize clinicians. We, we mm -hmm. want to show them that we don't all fall in, you know, I don't know anybody who falls into the category of, you know, big white beard, Austrian accent. Well, you know, I suppose people from Austria maybe, but I, <laughs> I don't know anybody from Austria. But, you know, the, that image of the detached, stoic, no mm -hmm. compassion mental health provider, I, I really just don't run into that. And I want people to see that, hey, we're gamers too, a bunch of us. You can connect with us because we like the same things you do. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I talk with clients about their gaming experience and you know, just watch them light up when they're, ta when they're talking about DPS theory in, in uh, Destiny 1. And first of all, I'm like, you're still playing Destiny 1? Good on you, man. Good <laughs> on you. But secondly, you're, you're, you're schooling me on DPS theory here. <laughs> um, that's great. So how can listeners find out more about you and more about Take This? Well, the easiest way is to go to our website, takethis.org. Absolutely follow us on Twitter at Take This ORG. Find us on Facebook. We have a lot of fantastic expert content on our website. We've got some great resources on there for finding a clinician, for finding you know helpful apps and anything like that. But our website, Twitter, Facebook, those are the best ways to do it. If people want to support us as we are a nonprofit, Patreon is a wonderful, wonderful platform. And, you know, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash take this ORG. All right. Awesome. Yeah, I encourage listeners to check it out. Take This has been on my radar for a while. And I'm, I'm glad to uh, get someone on the show to talk about it. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. No, thanks for having me. While I was editing this episode, I realized that I laughed more in this interview than maybe any other. Dr. B definitely balances between the serious aspects of mental health and the joy of games quite well. Be sure to check out his work with Take This. He also has some cool side projects that he was too modest to talk about here, but you can find them if you go looking for them. That's it for this week's Intelligence Boost. If you liked this discussion, you'll want to tune in next week. Dr. B talked a lot about using Dungeons & Dragons and other tabletop role-playing games and therapy, and that is the specialty of my guest next week, Adam Johns and Adam Davis of the nonprofit Game to Grow. Subscribe so you don't miss it. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in seven.
the Podglomerate, a sonic universe. Music for this episode provided by the ever-elusive and mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You might know about climate change, but do you know how it's changing life on our coasts? I'm Carlisle Calhoun, co-host of Sea Change, the award-nominated podcast from WWNO, New Orleans Public Radio, and PRX. Each episode, we dive deep into the environmental issues facing coastal communities, bringing you stories that go beyond the headlines, from species under threat to climate migration. Because we have a lot to save, and it's time to talk about a sea change. Listen to new episodes of Sea Change wherever you get your podcasts.